Good morning. We have gathered this morning to exalting God. We've been doing that through the singing of His Word, through praying together, and now we will do that through the preaching of the Word. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn in them to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And our text today is going to be 2, 1 through 12, 12 verses, and the account of the wedding at Cana. The Word of God says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, said to him, everyone serves the, the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to, down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray again. Oh, Father, we, oh God, you are my God. You are our God and we earnestly seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Our lips, our lips will praise you. We will bless you as long as we live. In your name we will lift up our hands. Father, we come before you this morning. And we want you to be exalted in our hearts. And I pray that the psalmist, that, that posture of Psalm 63 would be our posture. Our soul longs to drink from you. Father, I pray for your people here this morning. I pray for those who come here today burdened by grief and despair and trouble and anxiety and sin. Father, I pray that you would show them where the good wine is to be had. And they would turn there and they would drink and they would find their joy in you forever. Help me, I pray. Help me to know nothing here except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Help me in my insufficiency to proclaim the sufficient word of God that is powerful to the saving of souls. I pray that the sermon that is received and heard 
would be so much better than the one that I have prepared by the working of your spirit and applying your word to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to begin where I ended last week. I, I read the stated purpose of John in writing the gospel, this gospel account and including the different stories that he, the narratives, the different parts of Jesus' life that he included. You might recall it. It's in John chapter 20, near the end of it. it John says that he wrote these things. He says that these things are written so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the stated aim of the writer. That's why he wrote this. He has written this so that we, you and me, so that we might believe in Jesus Christ and that we would have life in that believing One of the ways John goes about this is by recording many of Jesus' signs. A sign is a work that Jesus accomplished that points to a greater reality. So he, he accomplishes a work, a sign, something miraculous, and the point of it is not just that miracle, but it's a sign that points to something else. I mean, that's how signs work, right? Isn't that how signs work? You see a sign that says, Falls Park, and then you see an arrow pointing straight ahead, and you know that that sign is pointing to a greater reality. It's pointing to the real falls. So it is with Jesus' sign. He does amazing works, but these works, works like healing sick people, people who are leprous, making blind people see, making disabled people walk, works like making a tiny bit of food enough for a a massive crowd or bringing a, a man back to life who had died four days earlier. He does these works to point us to who he is and what he will do. They they point to a greater reality. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and he will lay down his life to save his people. These signs point to that. And the aim of these signs is so that we might trust in him, trust in him for salvation and for hope and for the future, trust in him with all of our lives. We're we're to read this and believe more, have more confidence in Christ. That's why this first sign is recorded for us, and it's why we need it, and it's why I'm preaching it this morning. My aim is the same as John's. I want to either awaken your faith or strengthen it. And I'm praying that through the preaching of God's word and through his spirit, he might awaken faith in your hearts for the Lord Jesus and stir you up, stir us up together as a church in our hope and our confidence and our trust in Christ, ready to face this life with all of its unknown hardships, all of its unknowns and all of its hardships. And to do so with joyful, steady, unfading hope in Christ. And to do that, we're going together to an ancient wedding feast in a small village near Nazareth, where an unnamed bride and groom are getting married. And many, many people have gathered to celebrate, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, by the way, is not named in this gospel, interestingly, and Jesus and his disciples. There are a few things different than some of the wedding feasts that you have perhaps gone to here. 
One of the big differences is that this is way longer than a couple of hours. Sometimes they went on for days. The couple and their family would invite family, friends, many from the community to celebrate. Sometimes entire villages would show up, invited, not crashing, but invited to the party to celebrate. It was a happy, joyous occasion, and many would drop everything, their work, to be there. And there was wine. All the evidence tells us that wine was a a major part of the celebration. I read in several commentaries that you could actually sue the groom if the wine ran out. It was vital, I guess. And I think it it, it played a bigger part, a symbolic part, more than what it really was, more than just wine. It was almost a symbol of joy and merriment at the occasion. It was typical, as you can see in this passage, it was typically the job of the bridegroom. His job was to bring the wine. In verses 9 and 10, the master of the feast calls the bridegroom, talks with him about the wine that he supposedly supplied. So, looking to the bridegroom. And so, fittingly, I mean, accordingly, it's the bridegroom in our account who has failed. The wine ran out. And it was a social disaster. It would bring shame and scorn. It would would sour the event. And you can almost the bride whisper under her breath to her new husband, Frank, you had, you had one job. <laughs> we don't know why the, the wine ran dry. Perhaps it was bad planning. Maybe they didn't know that so many people would show up. Perhaps the bridegroom's family was of small means, and they were not able to provide the amount of wine needed for such a big event. They had hoped, maybe, that People wouldn't drink that much or wouldn't notice the short supply, and they brought what they could, but it was insufficient. What they brought was insufficient. The wine went dry. Thus Mary, the mother of Jesus, turned to the most resourceful person she had ever met, her son, Jesus. She saw the present insufficiency And she turned to Jesus. And I think it makes sense. Jesus had never had a wrong thought. He always knew what to do. Jesus would know what to do now. Mary sees an insufficiency and she turns to Jesus. The one who never asks advice and never needs advice. There's no record in the Bible of Jesus asking someone else's advice. Praise to his heavenly Father. He does not ask man. So that's where we are now in Cana, poised to have her own faith in Jesus stirred and buttressed by his first sign, this first revelation of the glory of God in Christ. So what we'll do, a couple of words about the interaction with Mary, because that's significant here, and there's some questions there, and then some time on the sign itself. When Mary goes to Jesus and says they have no wine, Jesus responds in a way that we wouldn't expect them to, right? He doesn't say, okay, mom, I'm on it. He responds, as you can see in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. That sounds rather hard, doesn't it? And so many people try to soften it. I, I won't try to do that. Friends, my job is not to apologize for Jesus as if he needs some apology. 
And my job isn't to frame his actions in a way that your sensibilities will agree with. That's not what the Bible is for. The Bible is not simply a book written to conform to confirm all the things that you already think about God and man and life. And I want to say that now because this passage and many others in the Gospel of John are going to push us and push us way beyond our natural human thinking. And we're to be shaped by that. This isn't biased confirmation. This is the Bible changes us. So my job, this is just an aside, but my job is, is to let it do, it do its pushing without apology and not apologize for Jesus. But I will say this, the address woman, though it sounds rude to us, is not rude. It was not rude in the original context. There's no evidence that Jesus rudely addressed his mother by calling her woman. Even so, if you are a little boy in this room listening to this sermon, I'm not suggesting that when your mom tells you to pick up your room later today that you respond with, woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> Rather, my pastoral advice is for you not to go there and simply say, yes, ma'am. I'm from the deep south, and I grew up calling grown women ma'am. I would get in trouble for not referring to grown women in that manner. Teachers in school, women at church, aunts, my aunts, my grandmothers, all heard me say ma'am in response to their questions or commands. The first time I said it in Nebraska, after I moved there as a pastor, I was at a coffee shop, and the woman I said it to, I just bought a coffee, and she asked me a question. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I'm not a ma'am. I'm only 30. Ma'am in the South is common and courteous, just a courteous way to refer to grown women. And the way that Jesus addressed Mary is like that, only not like that. It's like that in a way, and it's not like that. It's courteous like that. But in the South, the difference is we would say ma'am to our own mothers. I would say ma'am to my mom when she asked me to do something or asked me a question. And woman was not a common way to address one's mother in that day. So note that. It's not rude for Jesus to address her as woman, but it is distant. So the question is, why the distance? And my answer is that I think Jesus is making it very clear that he is a good and obedient son and beholden to his father. All of those things to his father and his father's will. He must be about his father's business. He's no longer a child. He is now beholden completely to his father and his father's will, not to Mary's. And so he makes the distance clear to Mary. It is a courteous, though firm, gentle rebuke. I wanted to discover that there's no rebuke in verse 4. But the more I studied it, the more I became convinced, the more undeniable it is that Jesus was, in fact, gently, though firmly, rebuking Mary. The language literally in the Greek is, what to me and to you? And it strikes me, it strikes right at the relationship of, of Mary and Jesus. It's as if Jesus was saying, there's this thing, the, the wine has run out, and then there's you, Mary, and then there's me. And there's no definitive line connecting these things right now to me. 
what to you to me. And I think Jesus is saying plainly to her that he is beholden to his Father's will and not to hers. And he's being gentle with that. He goes on to do the the sign. He goes on to help. And she leaves the conversation. She knows he's going to help. She leaves the conversation believing that he will meet that need. We know that because he tells the ser- she tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do. So she left there believing it is a gentle, very gentle rebuke. Now, one last thing. He tells us and he tells her why he is rebuking her. At the end of verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, why does he say that? And then why does he go on after saying that to do this, this work? Jesus' hour everywhere it is mentioned refers to his special work on earth, his suffering, his dying, his atonement for the sins of his people. I think he's saying it here because Mary has turned to him with an insufficiency. The wine has run out. In fact, Jesus has come to earth because of our massive insufficiency. His purpose, his hour, is specifically meeting our insufficiencies by his grace. He will die because our righteousness, your righteousness and mine, is massively insufficient for a holy God. It's even described as filthy rags. He will suffer for our insufficiency. So Mary is right to turn to Christ with an insufficiency, but she does not perhaps see the timing or the scope or the nature of that insufficiency fully. The insufficiency that Christ has come to overcome. So Jesus gently rebukes her because his hour, the hour his father has determined when he will go and sufficiently do the work needed to save Mary and everyone else who trusts in him is not yet. His hour is not yet. But he, by, in his grace, goes on to show a sign that points with a, with a bold arrow to that hour. Jesus meets this little insufficiency at this wedding as a sign that he will meet our greatest insufficiency when he will go to the cross and definitively provide for our lack. So that's his interaction with Mary. That's how I read it, how I understand it. Now let's think about the miracle itself. Maybe it would be helpful to sort this out, to make just a few observations about the way Jesus goes about doing this sign. Here are four, four observations about this first sign that Jesus does. First, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chooses to use stone jars that are for the Jewish rite of purification that were there to do this miracle. I don't, just, I don't think it's because they're the only thing available to him. I don't think that's why. I think there is a deep meaning in that and in everything Jesus does. D.A. Carson, one who wrote one of my favorite commentaries on the Gospel of John, calls this miracle an acted parable. And I think he's right. That is, his, the real actions that he does and real things that he does, even in, in the midst of doing this sign, are infused with a deeper meaning. I think that's how it is. These jars had a specific religious purpose. They were meant as a way to ritualistically cleanse yourself so that you would be pure before God, so that you'd be ready to eat a special meal or, or do some religious act of observance. And Jesus chooses these pots to do that sign. So, just a point of fact. 
when they used these jars for their intended purpose, the Jewish rite of purification, they were not, in fact, made pure before God. After they used these jars for ritual cleaning, the only real difference is that they were now wet. And maybe a tiny bit more self-righteous, but Jesus, Jesus, he is the one who makes impure people pure. In his work, in his blood, he will cleanse us. Not ritualistically, but actually and spiritually and savingly. He has these jars filled to the brim. And I think there's a hint there of the full, sufficient work that he will do through his work on the cross in cleansing us. The psalmist said, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That's a work that only God can do. There is no penance. There is no ritual. There's no thing you can do to make yourself pure before God like that. You must turn to Jesus. And when you do, he makes you pure. It's a work that only God can do. No ceremony, no ritual. Only Jesus and his cross. I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses purification jars to do this miraculous sign. That's my first observation. The second observation is the sheer amount of wine he provides at this feast. John is careful to tell us how big these jars are and how much they hold. They each hold as the ESV translates it, as 20 to 30 gallons. And there are six of them. So all told, the jars would hold between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's about a thousand bottles of wine. A thousand bottles of wine. That is likely way more than they would be able to drink during this wedding feast. And I think the significance of that is that when Jesus provides... He provides abundantly. Later in the Gospels, Jesus will say, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In a bit of doxology, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Jesus provided way more than they needed for that feast. The joy he provides us is far more abundant than we ask or think. So my third observation from this sign is that Jesus is providing for an unnamed bridegroom. And I just want to note that because, as I said before, I think this points to something far greater, and we'll circle back to this point in a moment. This unnamed bridegroom is at fault and will be the subject of scorn and shame unless there's intervention and Jesus steps in and provides for him, but more on this in a moment. My fourth and final observation is that Jesus provides the second best wine ever. 1,000 bottles of the second most delicious wine anyone has ever tasted anywhere. Look again at verses 9 through 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had, who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine But you, you've kept the good wine until now. 
I mean, the, the wine they served first tasted like the bad wine compared to the wine that Jesus served. And I think that makes sense. At the beginning of the feast, before anyone has had anything to drink at all, people tend to serve the most delicious wine that they have, at least in this culture. And as the feast goes on, for obvious reasons, their tastes become far less discerning. And so, in an economic move, they pull out the cheap stuff. No sense at that point using the best wine. It's wasted. Let's use up the lesser quality wine. The amazement of the master of the feast is that this wine, served in the middle of the feast, is far superior to the one that they served in the beginning. It made their best wine seem like the cheap stuff. Jesus provides the good wine. Now, of course, that makes perfect sense. God is the creator of heaven and earth. In Psalm 104.15, it says that God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. God obviously knows how to create the very best wine, the most sublime tasting wine any person anywhere has ever tasted. The wine that Jesus provided at the feast in overabundant quantities was the second best wine in the universe. Jesus provides the good wine. Now again, this is a mere sign. Verse 11 says that this, this is the, the first of his signs that he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, right? It's a sign. Falls Park, straight ahead. This is all pointing to something about Jesus. It is a sign that shows us both who he is and what he will do. And what this sign points to is when Jesus will provide the world with the very best wine in the universe, his blood shed on Calvary's tree to gladden the heart of man forever. One sip by faith of this wine, the true wine, and your heart is glad forever. All this points to Jesus in his hour. He was revealing a bit of his glory at the wedding feast. Jesus' work on the cross would fully purify all those who had faith in him. All those who have faith in him. I mean, isn't that good? You, if you have your faith in Christ, it doesn't matter how dirty your past is or how much, you sh how much shame you feel when you consider it. He makes you pure. White like snow. He doesn't offer repeated ritualistic cleansing. He washes us and we are made clean. He provides abundantly for our needs. More than we are able to ask or think. 1,000 bottles of wine. Jesus is all satisfying. He meets all the needs, all of our needs in him. He truly satisfies the heart of every man who comes to him by faith. And every woman and every child who comes to him by faith. He fully satisfies everyone who turns to him. The Lord is my shepherd, the psalmist said. I shall not want. And this points to his provision, not for some unnamed bridegroom, but as the bridegroom for his bride. The unnamed bridegroom failed. Frank had one job, and he was insufficient. 
And I believe that this points to the all-sufficient work of Christ as the true bridegroom. The true bridegroom who does not come up short, who supplies all that we, his bride, need. And he supplies it in himself. No lack for all of eternity. The event at Cana is a glimpse of that, a small manifestation or revelation, a limited display of his glory, the glory that will be on full display in the gospel. Jesus will suffer. He will die. He will be buried. And on the third day, he will rise again. And soon after, he will ascend back into heaven, and he will take his seat on his throne. He did this, and he will be given a name that is above every name. What we see in John 2 is a sign, Falls Park, straight ahead, the cross, the empty grave, the glorious throne, salvation for his people, everlasting joy in Christ, straight ahead. I love this passage. I love the wine that Jesus provides for his people. In a moment, we're going to pass around little cups of grape juice. To remind us of the lovely first best wine that's ever been tasted in the universe. The cup of the new covenant in his blood. The good wine. So let me just close with a couple of take homes from this account. Ways I think we should apply this to our lives. First, the disciples saw this sign and look at their response. They trusted in him. They trusted in Christ. See that at the end of verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. Now, at least several of his disciples had already shown evidence that they were trusting in Jesus. They were following Jesus. Philip called him the Messiah. Nathaniel, as you recall from last week, already confessed Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. I believe that this sign still strengthened their faith. This is for believers, even. We might believe in him. Their faith was bolstered and buttressed in Christ, they trusted in him more because of what they saw. And oh, may this passage, by the power of the Spirit, do that work in us too. Strengthen our faith. May we leave here trusting more in Jesus because of this sign. I hope it bolsters your confidence in Christ this morning. You who are going through great crisis, you who can't see the way forward, or that there's any hope, look at what Christ has done. You who are struggling with your doubts, you who feel like you are losing your battle to sin, see the sign and believe. Trust in Jesus. Fix your eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. Second, friends, don't settle for the cheap stuff. It runs out. It runs dry. Don't settle for Strawberry Hill when you can have life and joy in him forever. The world is always selling cheap wines. Wines of pleasure, money, worldly prestige, toys, houses, cars, various means to escape things, real life, reality. Distract yourself. Don't settle. Don't settle for that nasty tasting stuff. It might seem to be tasty, but the only reason is you haven't tasted the real stuff. The real wine, the good wine, the best wine. Don't settle 
It will run out. You will be thirsty again. Taste this wine. Drink it freely. Be glad in him forever. I'm going to pray for us. And then I've asked Christy Slauson to come and share her testimony. And then together we will rejoice in the gospel by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Father, we come to you now. We, We pray and we ask that you would move in this way, that we would be perpetually unsatisfied with the wine the world offers, and we will be ever satisfied in the wine that you give us, the cup of the New Testament that you've poured out in your blood. Lord, we pray together for Christy now as she shares her testimony. We pray that you would help her to clearly share and that the gospel would shine through and we would exalt in that gospel now. In Jesus' name, amen.